As Dr. Master ascends the pulpit stairs, we wish to welcome him to the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Dr. Jonathan L. Master, Ph.D. Aberdeen, formerly Professor of Theology and Dean of the School of Divinity at Cary University, has since 2020 been the president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary is a seminary that is committed to biblical fidelity, confessional integrity, experiential piety, and forming men for preaching and pastoring the flock purchased with his own blood. And so we welcome Dr. Master and his wife, Elizabeth, who is sitting with the McDonald's, I believe, back here or somewhere near. And we are so very thankful that they have been able to be with us. If you did not hear, as, as Elder Valeni pointed out earlier, the portion of the conference on the Reformation from yesterday, those are recorded, and we encourage you to hear them as he dwelt on the theme of the sufficiency of the Bible. And so, Dr. Master, we glorify the Lord, but we honor his servant, and we are so thankful to have you preaching the Word of God to us. Well, thank you. It is a joy to be with you this morning. It was a joy to be with many of you yesterday. And what a privilege we have, not only as we have every Lord's Day, to gather in Christ's name and to worship Him and hear from His Word, but even perhaps especially this weekend to focus on some of the great truths of the Protestant Reformation. We want to ask the Lord's blessing on His Word, so bow with me now in prayer. Our great God, we thank you for the many blessings that are ours in Christ, not least the blessing of being able to come before you on this day which you have made and to lift our voices in praise to you. We thank you that you hear our requests because the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, ever lives to intercede for us. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We confess very openly and freely this morning that we would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through your word. And yet we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the truths of your word by your Holy Spirit. We pray that your word, as you promised, would not return void but would accomplish its purpose. We pray that your spirit would cause your word to bear much fruit in our lives, convict us of sin, train us in righteousness, thoroughly equip us for every good work. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46. I'll read the whole psalm, Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 11. Remember, as I read and as you follow along and And listen, this is the Word of God. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, this passage was a significant passage in the life and ministry of the great reformer Martin Luther. Probably, it's probably the case this morning that most of us are as familiar or perhaps more familiar with the hymn that we just sung, A Mighty Fortress, than we are with this psalm, Psalm 46. But this is the psalm on which that hymn is based and from which Many of the phrases and lines and certainly the theology of that hymn is, is drawn. And in one sense, of course, this uh, isn't ideal. We always want to be more familiar with the Bible than with any other book, more familiar with the Scriptures even than our own hymnals, as precious as they are. But in this one case, it may not be such a bad thing because this psalm, Psalm 46, is very clearly a psalm that is meant to be sung by the people of God. If you look at the superscription in your text, those little words above verse 1 actually are verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible, and so they are part of the text of Scripture, and I want to read them to you, and you'll see that this is meant to be sung. The first line says this, to the choir master indicating, of course, that this is a psalm that was given to those who were leading God's people in singing. And then it goes on to say, of the sons of Korah. And this group, these sons of Korah, we know from other texts in the Old Testament, were appointed by God particularly to lead God's people in the worship of God. So it's to the choir master of the sons of Korah, And then it says this, according to Alamoth, and we don't know precisely what that is, but it's probably a a tune of some sort. And we don't know what that tune was, but we are fairly confident that in fact that's what it's referring to. So to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to this tune, Alamoth. And then if you hadn't gotten the picture already, the superscription goes on to say a song. And then there are other indications in the text as well. I didn't read these when I read the text, but you'll notice that after verse 3, there's that little word, selah. And you find the same word after verse 7, selah again, and then after verse 11. And this word serves not only to divide up the psalm into its stanzas, but probably served some kind of function in the singing of this psalm. And the reason I bring all that to your attention is because I think it plays an important role in our understanding of this psalm. 
Because this, this psalm undeniably was meant to be sung by the people of God. And what's so striking about that fact is that if you look at the topic of the psalm, the, the topic of this song that was meant to be sung in unison by all of God's people together, the theme is very clearly a disturbing theme. Look at the first line. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In other words, God gave this song to his people in order that they might sing in the midst of their trouble. Now, what that tells us is this. It reminds us of something that we see throughout the whole Scripture, which is that God's people are not exempt from trouble. There are teachers today in places that will tell you that to become a Christian and to follow the Word of God means that trouble will no longer be a part of your life, or at least that trouble will, will have a reduced role in your life. Well, that may be true in certain cases, but the reality is this, in the Bible, What's clear is that God's people will face and should expect to face times of great trouble. And I have to imagine that there are many here, many of you, who are right now facing times of trouble. Or if you're not facing them right now, perhaps you've just come out of a season of great difficulty. If you haven't just come out of a season of difficulty and you're not in a season of difficulty, it's probably likely that you will be in the not too distant future. The Bible tells us that Christians, like all who are in the world, suffer many kinds of hardships, many kinds of troubles. As a matter of fact, what the Bible says is this, that uh, to be a Christian in some ways increases the degree of trouble because what the Bible makes clear is that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus himself says to his disciples, if they they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. And So right at the outset, we have to say this, that one of the lessons of this psalm, which is a song, is that we can expect that we'll face times of great trouble. Of course, the, the message, though, of this psalm is ultimately a message of comfort because, again, you read in verse 1 that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, the psalmist goes on in this first stanza, verses 1 through 3, to explain the nature of the trouble that many among the people of God will face or are facing. Look at what he says. This isn't just small-scale trouble. This isn't just the kind of trouble where, you know, your team lost on Saturday. This is, this is trouble, we might say, with a, with a capital T. Look at what he says in verse 2. Look at how he describes the trouble of the people of God. We will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. This is a psalm that is not just about any kind of trouble. It's about trouble that we might say is literally earth-shattering. 
You may have had occasions in your life where you sat down with someone and they asked you how you were doing and you began to complain about certain things that you're facing in life, things that seemed significant to you, and then you finally reach that point in the conversation where you ask them the question that they asked you and you find that what they're going through is far more serious than anything you're experiencing. I remember a humorous example of this when I was in seminary. There were about three of us who, in the middle of a four and a half hour Greek class, we would take a break in the middle of the class, and one of the older students, most of us were in our early 20s, but this, uh, this man was in middle age at that time, and, and he would always take us out for a quick bite to eat, and then we'd come back and finish the Greek class. And I remember one time he came in just looking despondent. It looks, looked like his, his world had fallen apart. And we asked him, what, what, what is it that's weighing on you? What is it that's so upsetting to you? And he said, oh, it's a, it's a terrible thing, brothers. The, the BMW 7 Series is in the shop today. And, and, and I have the loaner car from the dealer. And, I, and I'm so sorry that I have to take you out in the 5 Series tonight. Well, you know, that, that may have seemed like trouble, but that's not trouble according to the psalmist. This is earth-shattering, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. God is our help in times of trouble. We use this language today even to describe trouble in our own lives. We say that we've just received news that, is, that makes us feel like the foundations of our life are falling apart. Uh, we, we've heard something that's groundbreaking, that's earth-shattering. We feel like we, we can't even come up for air amidst the kind of trouble that we're facing. This is the kind of trouble when someone that you care about deeply breaks your trust. This is, this is the kind of trouble when you receive a diagnosis and you know when you hear the words that your life won't ever be the same again. This is the kind of trouble that Psalm 46 is speaking of. This is the kind of trouble that God's people are supposed to sing about. What the psalmist says is, God is our help in times of trouble. You know the amazing thing about the language of verse 2, this language of mountains being moved into the heart of the sea and the earth giving way, this, this kind of language that the psalmist employs is that, in fact, if you, if you turn further into the Psalter, if you turn to Psalm 104, what you see is that the psalmist there says that these are the kinds of things that God promises won't happen. In fact, that ultimately, uh, the mountains won't be moved into the heart of the sea. And ultimately, that the ground beneath our feet, though it may feel like it's giving way, won't give way because of the Lord. In fact, here's what Psalm 104 says. God set the earth in, on its foundations, that it should never be moved. And so it's as if what the psalmist is saying is, even if the unthinkable happens, even if the, the impossible happens, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help 
and troubled. And you know, the reason the psalmist can speak with such confidence is because this very same language is used in Isaiah 54 to picture the nearly impossible situation. In Isaiah, the Lord comforts his people with these words, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So why can the psalmist speak with such confidence in the midst of everything falling apart? Well, well, because of the nature of God. Because God is a God who keeps His covenant promises to His people. God is a God of steadfast love. God is a God of compassion and mercy. Are you aware of that today? Are you more aware of the struggles you're facing than of the reality that the covenant-keeping God is a God of steadfast love, is a God whose promises can be banked on even when it seems that nothing else can be. This is the God of Psalm 46. This is the God whose praise is to be in the lips of His people. God's compassion, God's steadfast love is a very present help to us. It keeps us from fearing. It's more solid than the mountains themselves. It's safer than the safest investment you could imagine. It is more reliable than your closest friend on this earth. That's the God of whom He speaks. Well, there's a transition, of course, between verses 3 and 4. I already mentioned that little word, Selah, which sets verses 1 through 3 apart from verses 4 through 7. But even if that word were absent from the text, even if we didn't have that little pause in there, you could still see a marked change from verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. The waters are roaring and foaming uh, water is pouring over the psalmist, and, and, and the, the trouble seems to be greater and greater. And as the water is coming over his head, the mountains themselves are trembling, and they're about to fall into the heart of the sea. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And what the psalmist is doing in verses 4 through 7 is he is shifting our attention from the difficulties of this life, the, the very great troubles of this life, and he's shifting our gaze from those troubles to heaven itself. In fact, you know, in the Hebrew text, it doesn't come out quite this way, the way it is rendered in the English. In the English version, it says, there is a river. But in fact, in the Hebrew text, that the first word that you read when you come to verse 4 is just that word, river. A river. A river whose streams make glad the city of God. And that is so significant in the Bible. 
Because if you look at Genesis chapter 2 and you see the description that is given there of the Garden of Eden into which Adam and Eve are placed after their creation, in that description of the garden, one of the key features of the garden, one of the key items that is highlighted in this geographical description is that there is a river coming through the garden and flowing out of it into many rivers. And then furthermore, when when you read further in the Bible and, and you look at the description that Ezekiel the prophet gives of this heavenly temple, one of the unusual features of that heavenly temple described in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is that there's that grand heavenly temple and out of it, Ezekiel says, flows a river. And then, and then when you finish your Bible and you get to the end and you read the book of Revelation and the description of the new heavens and the new earth, what do you see in that description of the new Jerusalem? Well, you see that one of the features of that heavenly city is that there's a river coming through it and out from it. And you see, that's what the psalmist is drawing on. Remember in the midst of your suffering, remember in the midst of your trouble, remember, remember the river whose streams make glad the city of our God. You see, the river is merely a signpost. It's, this, it's the first thing that the psalmist wants us to glimpse. And in glimpsing that river, it carries with it all the images of heaven itself, the place where, where God dwells, the place where He promises that His people will dwell through faith. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And of course, the big thing about the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, isn't the river, although the river is, as it were, the signpost. It's the first thing you see, and you know immediately where you are in the Bible when you see it. But, but the, the important thing is what he reveals in verse 5. That, that, that river and that city is the city where God dwells. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. In fact, according to this section of the psalm, everything else may move. The nations may rage. Kingdoms may totter. Certainly, the mountains are falling into the sea from the perspective of the psalmist. But in the city of God, in heaven itself where God dwells, he shall not be moved, and therefore the city itself shall not be moved. You remember some of these wonderful passages of comfort that we have in the New Testament about the solidity, the unchanging nature of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians 1 says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He says in the book of Colossians, 
For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You remember that extended meditation on this theme that we have at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, where he describes the greatness of the Son of God. And at one point says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels Worship Him. Now do you think about this in the midst of trouble? Do you cast your gaze to the heavenly city when everything seems to be crashing down around you? Do you remember the fact that God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved? You know, it's striking, isn't it, how often Jesus returns to this theme. You'll remember, of course, after Jesus' resurrection, he met his disciples, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 28 that he gave to them those words of the Great Commission, which still guide our church life today. But I don't know if you remember the context of that, because just prior to giving the Great Commission, what it says is that Jesus' apostles were there, and they worshipped him and doubted. Their worship was combined with doubt. It's used one other time in Matthew's Gospel, this strange combination, worship and doubt. And so there they are. They see their resurrected Savior and they're worshiping Him. And yet in their hearts there's great fear and there's great doubt. And maybe, maybe on this morning when we gather together, de- together to worship the Lord, you, you, you could testify the same thing. Yes, I'm worshiping the Lord, but, but, but I'm doubting at the same time. And what does Jesus say to them, knowing their hearts? Well, he says, first of all, essentially what this psalm says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what does that mean for us? Well, first I'm going to say this. If you have not bowed the knee to Jesus in your life. If you have not turned to that one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who is enthroned at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly city, if you've not come to him and confessed your sin and asked him to cleanse you by his blood, sincerely given yourself to him, then then you're simply living today in rebellion against the one who alone can save you and, who, and the one who is enthroned above all earthly powers and authorities. I, I want to tell you today, if, if this is the position you are in, that your strength will fail and, and your friends cannot ultimately help you after death. Your bank account may fluctuate but you know you can't take any of it with you. Your legacy, your name will die out. And, and, and furthermore, in, in the midst of the trouble that this life will have for you, you have no ultimate hope and, and no, no rest in the time of the coming judgment apart from Christ. Christ, according to the scriptures, is the God most high who is enthroned 
with all power in heaven and on earth. The Bible says he is the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. And to him all men must give an account. And so so first I want to say to you. If you are not in Christ. If you don't know him in a saving way. If you haven't come to him for forgiveness of sin. Let let today be that day when you bow your knee to this, this one enthroned in heaven. The Bible says now is the acceptable time. The scriptures tell us today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Could not be a more solemn duty that I have today than to say to you that Jesus Christ said that whoever will come to me, I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus offers pardon and forgiveness and welcome and adoption to those who come to him sincerely in repentance and faith. Now if you are trusting Christ, if you know this one, this most high God described in the psalm, then then verse 7, verse 7 is for you. Because in the midst of the nations raging and the kingdoms tottering, what does this text promise us? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so to you, I want to say this this morning. I want to plead with you to turn your eyes off of the waves that appear to be crashing over your head, and to the city, to the heavenly city, where God is enthroned, and He will not be moved. You remember that account that we have in the Gospels of the Apostle Peter, impetuous man as he was, who went into the water and was walking on the water to his Savior. But when did he begin to sink? When his eyes moved from the King, his Lord, his Savior, to the waves around him. I want to ask you today, do you pray more or worry more in your life? If you were to start the clock every time you begin to worry, and then start the clock every time you begin to pray, how would that come out at the end of each day or the end of each week? What the psalmist tells us is to look to the river, to look to the city, to look to the unchanging God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's not an accident at all that in the Bible, the places where God gives the greatest revelation about the future, the greatest revelation even about the end times, and the greatest revelation about heaven are in the context of of his people suffering greatly. I think about those great eschatological texts in the Bible. Think about the texts in the book of Daniel or, or in Ezekiel or in Isaiah or in the New Testament books of First and Second Thessalonians or in the book of Revelation. Think about these great visions that we get of the future and these great visions of the promises of God and these great, sometimes mysterious and, and controversial visions of heaven. 
Well, what was the context in which those were given? Well, invariably what you'll find is the context was suffering. You see, God knows that when you are suffering, what you need is not some facile comfort that relates to this world. Things will get better, don't worry. No, no, what you ultimately need, what you ultimately need is a renewed vision of heaven and of God Himself. And that's what this middle stanza is designed to give. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, He's with us. The God of Jacob is our mighty fortress. Well, in a sense, what he exhorts us to in the middle stanza is what the psalmist does in the third stanza. It's a little bit difficult to see beginning in verses 8 and 9, but what's happening is that the psalmist in verse 8 initially gives us a command, and the command is, come and look, come and behold, come and behold the works of the Lord. And then what happens in the remainder of verse 8 and into verse 9 is the psalmist interweaves a a complex series of passages from the Old Testament. He, He makes allusion to various texts in the Old Testament, and in a sense what he's doing is he's reminding the people of God of the things that God has done in the past. He's reminding them of the works of the Lord that they are to come and behold, according to verse 8. And so what he's doing, as we see, is he's pulling together parts of Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah 4. He, he alludes to Psalm 76 and 1 Samuel 2 and Ezekiel 39 and Exodus 14. These passages that detail some of the great works of salvation that God has wrought among his people in the past. And what he is saying in this third section is this, remember the way in which God has worked out salvation for his people in the past. In other words, he's saying, look, God is the God who flooded the earth and saved Noah and his family. God is the God who judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God is the God who rescued his people from the most powerful ancient empire, the Egyptians, by plagues and a wall of water. God led his people to conquer the land. God struck down Goliath. God destroyed the Philistines. And we, of course, would add, pulling the thread of this, God is the God who conquered death and sin on the cross and by the empty tomb in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that if you're a Christian, and if I were to grab you at the end of the service, I I hope that you could give something of this kind of testimony in your own life. I hope if I said to you, come, behold the works of the Lord. Tell me how the Lord has rescued you in the past. I hope you might have one or two or three or dozens of ways in which God has helped you in the past. The psalmist wants us to remember those times. But, But even if you couldn't, even if the darkness is so desperate and black in your life right now, such that you can't even recall the works of the Lord in your life. You you are hanging on by a thread. And what you can do is you can look to the Bible. You can look to 
what God has done for His people to whom you are connected. And you could take comfort in that. Oh, God has rescued His people in the past. God has saved His people from the last and final enemy, which is death. God has conquered those things on the cross. God has won the ultimate victory. And it's that memory of those things, that recalling of those things, that then very seamlessly leads to the command in verse 10. See, verse 10 is often pulled out of the context of this psalm and put on the kitchen wall. But but of course, it's in a context. And the context is that the writer has simply has already told you what it is that God has done. It's already reminded you of, of, of where God is and how God cannot be moved and, and, and how confident you can be in His promises. And it's in that context, that firm and certain context of who He is and what He has done that the psalmist can then say, on that basis, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Really, this could be translated as cease striving. Stop the constant work and worry and resistance to God. Know that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is God. Do you want this kind of rest for your soul today? Are you in trouble? Well, the Bible says, cast yourself on the mercy of God. Cast yourself on the one who is compassionate, who is faithful to His promises. Cast yourself on the God of Israel. Cast yourself on the crucified and risen Savior. And you see, of course, how the psalm ends. Verses 7 and 11 are identical The river that leads to the city of peace and joy. Well, verse 7 tells us that God, the God sitting on the throne of heaven is with us today. The Lord of hosts. What a friend we have in Jesus. And that powerful, strong, mighty God who has won victory after victory as we are reminded of in the third stanza and left enemy after enemy defeated on the field. Verse 11 tells us that that God, that God who was active in the past and is active in the world today, that God is with us. Do you know this God? Is this God who has revealed Himself ultimately and finally in Jesus Christ, your King, your comfort, your deliverer? He is the one who is at work and He will surely win the victory. And if we come full circle, isn't that exactly what the great reformer reflected on when he wrote about this psalm? He knew, he knew about the one who was comforting him, who was at his side, and who was fighting the battle for him even as trouble seemed to overtake him. Remember those words that we just sang? In the midst of trouble... Did we in our own strength confide? 
our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dust ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Our great God, thank you for the comfort that you give us in life and even as we approach death. Thank you for the revelation of yourself in your Son and for the victory that he's won over sin and death on our behalf. Comfort us with your promises. Comfort us with your presence. Remind us of who you are. Fix our eyes on heaven. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we ask. Amen.